0: Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Wednesday, January 12th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, the real physics of Wiley Coyote's 10 billion volt electromagnet. Plus, cannabis can prevent SARS CoV 2 from spreading, technically. And does listening to this podcast at double speed decrease your comprehension? Here are some of the cool things from the news today. I've covered Rhett Allen's physics of fictional universes pieces in the past, and they never disappoint. So when Jason shared a quick link today to Allen's physics of Wiley Coyote's 10 billion volt electromagnet, I knew I had to dive in more. So, Wile Coyote, you know, the coyote from Looney Tunes who is eternally trying to capture the Roadrunner, usually with some complex arrangement of Acme-brand explosives, only in the cartoon that Alan most recently organized, Wile Coyote has his eye on Bugs Bunny for his rabbit stew— the two go back and forth with various Rube Goldbergian attempts to injure the other one, ultimately leading to the big climactic moment when Wiley Coyote thinks he's convinced Bugs to eat a fake carrot made out of iron, and then he turns on his 10 billion volt electromagnet, which should magnetically pull Bugs with the iron carrot in his belly right to him. Of course, Bugs is too smart for the Coyote and sees right through the plan. Bugs stays safe, while the power of the electromagnet sends all manner of metal objects from around the area, from frying pans to a steamer ship, zooming into the Coyote's cave. But if Bugs hadn't seen through the scheme immediately, could it have worked? That is what Rhett Allen investigated. So first, we begin with some electromagnet basics. Unlike permanent magnets, like ones you might have on your fridge, which use ferromagnetic material and always work if the magnetic parts of them are aligned, electromagnets use an electric current to create a magnetic field. Quoting Allen and Wired, All electric currents produce magnetic fields. Normally, to make an electromagnet, you would take some wire and wrap it around a ferromagnetic material, like iron, and turn the current on. The strength of its magnetic field depends on the electric current and the number of loops the wire makes around the core. It's possible to make an electromagnet without the iron core, but it wouldn't be as strong. When the electric current makes a magnetic field, this field then interacts with the magnetic domains in the piece of iron. Now, that iron also acts like a magnet. The result is the electromagnet and the induced magnet attract each other. End quote. Now Next, Alan goes into quite a bit of math to work out this whole 10 billion volts thing. A couple of things to know. First, the strength so to speak of an electromagnet is that electric current which is measured in amps not the voltage measured in volts so to make a connection between those two one would have to calculate the resistance which indicates how difficult it is to move electric charges through a wire allen calculates the resistance using some estimated guesses about the length of the electromagnet wire in the cartoon and the resistivity of copper coming up with a resistance of point Zero eight ohms, which means the electric current is one point two times ten to the eleventh amps, which apparently is basically enough to melt the wire. Alan provides a comparison to a vacuum cleaner, which draws between five and ten amps. When you've been vacuuming for a while and touch your hand to the vacuum's cord, you can already feel how it's heating up. Now imagine that literally times ten billion for Wiley e. Coyote's electromagnet. Even reducing this current down to one billion to keep it simple, Allen says the electromagnet would still require a ten billion watt power source. And as the largest power plant on Earth produces twenty-two billion watts, Wiley Coyote must be working with some truly supervillain-level connections to power this electromagnet. But all right, let's say he's somehow got the hookup and can actually power this electromagnet. Would it work to pull that fake iron carrot from Bugs' burrow? Alan did a boatload of calculations here to determine the approximate force between the electromagnet and the iron carrot, eventually coming up with an attractive force of 4.05 times 10 to the negative 4 newtons. As he says, quote, That's like the gravitational weight of something with a mass of .004 grams, like a single human hair. That is quite a tiny force to move a heavy iron carrot. I don't think this method would actually capture Bugs Bunny, end quote. Part of the issue is that Bugs Bunny's burrow is quite a ways from Wiley Coyote's cave, and distance really does make the magnetic power grow weaker. And the fact that the carrot is simply iron and not a magnet itself further weakens the potential attractive force here. Which all also makes it pretty unlikely that all of the other stuff from around town, cars, bits of kitchens, the steamer ship, would be pulled in by the electromagnet too. It seems like Wiley Coyote isn't quite the genius he claims to be. But Rhett Allen kinda is. If you wanna check his work, he linked to some Python code with all of his calculations in the article linked in the show notes. All right, so this next story is going to sound like some kind of junk science from your stoner cousin or some wellness influencer's CBD pyramid scheme, but it is actually the result of a peer-reviewed study published Monday in the Journal of Natural Products. It's just probably not quite as exciting as it sounds on the offset. A team at Oregon State University has found that certain hemp compounds can prevent SARS-CoV-2 from entering human cells. Specifically, a pair of cannabinoid acids bind to the spike protein, which blocks the virus from completing a crucial step of infection. Quoting Eureka Alert, the compounds are cannabigerolic acid, or CBGA, and cannabidiolic acid, CBDA, and the spike protein is the same drug target used in COVID-19 vaccines and antibody therapy. Study lead Richard Van Bremen said any part of the infection and replication cycle is a potential target for antiviral intervention, and the connection of the spike protein's receptor binding domain to the human cell surface receptor ACE2 is a critical step in that cycle, he said. That means cell entry inhibitors, like the acids from hemp, could be used to prevent SARS-CoV-2 infection and also to shorten infections by preventing virus particles from infecting human cells. They bind to the spike proteins, so those proteins, can't bind to the ACE2 enzyme, which is abundant on the outer membrane of endothelial cells in the lungs and other organs, end quote. And indeed, quoting again, lab tests showed that CBGA and CBDA prevented infection of human epithelial cells by the coronavirus spike protein and prevented entry of SARS-CoV-2 into cells. These compounds can be taken orally and have a long history of safe use in humans, Van Bremen said. They have the potential to prevent as well as treat infection by SARS-CoV-2. CBDA and CBGA are produced by the hemp plant as precursors to CBD and CBG, which are familiar to many consumers. However, they are different from the acids and are not contained in hemp products, end quote. As Vice explains it, quote, most of us are familiar with THC, which gets you stoned, and also CBD, which does not get you stoned, but which you can buy in a can of infused soda and appears to have other health benefits. What you might not know is that those glorious substances come from precursors, which are acids. CBGA is only found during the live, growing phase of the cannabis plant and converts into everything else we love about it. CBDA turns into CBD through decarboxylation, which can be the application of heat through smoking, vaping, or baking. What that means is that you can't really get CBGA and CBDA via any process of ingesting cannabis that gets you high. Rather, you'd have to extract it from a hemp plant." End quote. The study showed that the compounds were effective against the alpha and beta variants of SARS-CoV-2 and even as future variants emerge, the researchers believe that a combination of vaccination and treatment from CBDA or CBGA would be extremely effective, and such treatment would be an oral regimen in the form of a pill or a liquid. And interestingly, before settling on these two cannabinoid compounds, the team screened several other botanicals, including wild yams, red clover, hops, and licorice. And there is one from licorice that looked promising, but they need more funding before they can pursue further study. And I know this won't actually be the case, but just imagine if COVID-19 was finally defeated via a combination of cannabis and licorice. It's like if a group of fifth-year seniors in the biology department were tasked with saving the world. Good news for anyone listening to this podcast at one and a half speed right now. A new study out of UCLA has shown that students still retain information when they speed watch lectures up to twice the actual speed. Although once they try to go past double time, comprehension does begin to suffer. I finally started watching some videos and listening to some podcasts at one and a half speed after years of feeling like I had to respect the original creator's intent. I still don't always do it, you know, I try to focus on quality and experience more than quantity when watching or listening to media, but, you know, if I'm researching something or maybe on some sort of deadline, and especially if it's something where the host talks kind of slow or adds in a lot of extraneous information, upping the speed can be really useful. So, it is cool to know that at least according to this study, specifically done on students and lecture videos, my comprehension probably hasn't suffered when I've hit that 1.5x button. According to Science Daily, the researchers had 231 undergrads watch two videos, one on the Roman Empire and one on real estate appraisals. Some of them watched at normal speed, some at 1.5 speed, some at double speed, and some at 2.5 speed. In comprehension tests given both immediately following the viewings and a week later, the normal speed group performed the best, but only by a hair. For the immediate test, they averaged 26 out of 40 correct answers, while the 1.5 speed and double speed groups averaged 25 out of 40. The 2.5 speed group dropped down to 22 correct answers. The results were a little worse on average for the speed watchers on the retention test a week later, 24 out of 40 correct answers for the normal speeders and 21 out of 40 for the 1.5 and double speeders. But lead author Dylan Murphy, a doctoral student in psychology at UCLA, said, quote, surprisingly, video speed had little effect on both immediate and delayed comprehension until learners exceeded twice the normal speed, end quote. And honestly, if you're just watching or listening to something for fun, I feel like 22 out of 40 is still a good deal of comprehension. So even 2.5, if you can actually understand it, isn't that bad a speed to be watching or listening at. As for actually trying to retain the information long term, the researchers emphasize that time saved by watching at double speed should be used by students to supplement their studying with flashcards, practice tests, etc. Now, of course, one big caveat to all of this is that speakers do not speak at the same speed across the board. So double speed might be too fast for some media or just right for others. You know, personally, I find that I can always speed up audiobooks because they're super slow but more old-school YouTubers, for example, are often too fast to be sped up anymore. Science Daily notes that the average speaker goes about 150 words per minute and that previous studies have shown comprehension begins to decline at about 275 words per minute, so that might be another way to think about it. Regardless, it is cool to know that generally speeding up videos or podcasts isn't going to affect your comprehension too drastically. Want a new browser-based game to play while learning about gerrymandering at the same time? The Washington Post has got you covered. They created a game that they call the Gerrymander Invitational, in which wildly gerrymandered U.S. congressional districts are presented as nine holes of mini-golf. Each hole gets increasingly difficult as brick borders prevent you from making a straight shot to the hole, and with each one, they write a few words about how the district ended up that way. By the time it got to Maryland's third congressional district, I was about ready to give up. The average number of strokes for that round is 34. It's ridiculous. But the whole thing was pretty fun. Definitely a nice way to spend a few minutes and learn more about why congressional districts look the way they do. Link in the show notes to try it for yourself. But that's it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.